Now, just to put things in context, all week we have been vacationing at Baldhead Island, the place we often go for vacation, Nita and I. Uh, the fishing was not great, the weather not so great either, but the companionship was marvelous. And uh, I was on the road back trying to make sense of the sermon that I'm about to preach to you as Nancy drove. So with that in context, bear with me. I was most anxious as I began to prepare this sermon this week, and I'm just as anxious now as I begin to present it. When you hear it, you will know why. It comes from the fifth chapter of Ephesians, chapter of verses 21 through 33. I'm going to start out reading from the New Revised Standard Version of our Bible, the one you find in your pew, but I'm going to switch over uh, to the Messenger, which is Eugene Peterson's translation of that uh, for your and my edification. It begins... Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. Now let me go back to Eugene Peterson's translation Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but instead by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is what a man, why a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery. Now, I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. 
For Paul, marriage was not the kingdom of God normative way of being in relationship as Paul expected the second coming of Jesus imminently. Therefore, Paul said, if you don't have to get married, good. It just complicates things. And anyone who has ever been married would agree with that. But instead, if you can be single, choose that and work singly focused on the kingdom of God that was coming immediately. But if your passions run too hot and you can't help yourself, get married. So I'm saying that because in context, marriage is not always the normative way of being in our world. It's one way. Singleness is also a way. Now, with that disclaimer, let me say that the text I just read from Eugene Peterson reduces a little bit, I think, the authoritative power structure that was inherent in the new RSV version that I read first, but it still lingers. Peterson says the husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does for the church by being the head, but there is more emphasis on mutual subjection than in the first reading. Mutual subjection. There is a large population of Christians who believe that the reason so many marriages are failing these days is because of the egalitarian emphasis on women's rights and equality with men. If we just went back to the old days, went back to the Bible they say, specifically referring to passages like this, then marriage and family would become more stable. In actuality, the Barna Research Group, which is a predominantly faith-based group, did studies in 1999 and again in 2008 and found out that the divorce rate for more conservative or evangelical or fundamentalist uh, denominations is the same or even a little more than for more moderate Protestant ones. In some cases, even higher than just a little. And it might be, I think, because promoting masculine authority and hierarchy is a little like promoting literal interpretation of the universe as a seven-day event. You have to believe in sort of supernatural magic and a literal reading of the text in order to buy it. These days, with science making its way front and center, it becomes harder and harder. Now, I can understand the sentiment of such a view. I have that in myself as well. It's based on that thing in us that prefers all or nothing, black or white, either or solutions. It's easier to live with black and white, either or solutions, because there are fewer gray areas, complications, and ambiguities. This is not just a conservative issue, by the way. Ironically, there are just as many on the radical liberal side who view the world in the same black and white way, especially the scriptures. They throw the Bible out as nonsense because 
its cultural and scientific ambiguities don't hold up to the scientific discovery of our modern age. Therefore, it must not be true completely. For both, it's either absolutely true or none of it's true. But I think and hope as Presbyterians, there might be a third option. I did a wedding a long time ago with a guest preacher who was way more conservative, basically fundamentalist uh, than I. He was the preacher of the children who were being married, uh, married in their parents' church who were members of the church I pastored. He preached the homily in the marriage uh, wedding service, and he used this Ephesians text, holding up the standard that Ephesians did for the couple to follow, wives be subject to your husbands. He was not blatantly sexist about it. He tempered it some by saying that being subject to someone does not mean to blindly obey them, but it means to give them deference, to defer to them. And then he correctly went on, I think, to explain that the husband, who is now in the position as the head of the family, was to serve and sacrifice for the family in the same way that Christ served and sacrificed for the church, even to the point of death. But he was clear, unequivocally, that the husband, the man, was the head of the household. Then he ended, I think, with a sort of snide comment at the Presbyterian mainline denomination by saying, there's a whole lot more I'd like to say on this subject, but since I'm in a Presbyterian church, I will subject myself out of respect for them, ha-ha. No surprise that this kind of either-or or absolute thinking doesn't foster good relationships in communities and especially in marriages, which is always full of ambiguous complications full of communication issues and misunderstandings, expectations, and unspoken rules. Such concrete rigidity often leads to something breaking, and when it does, it means, uh uh-oh, the magic doesn't work anymore. The luster has rubbed off. Uh Uh-oh, God must not be present. A couple of years later, the couple came to visit for some marriage counseling. Apparently, the husband had decided to take the wives be subject to your husbands a little too seriously, thinking that she should be in submission in every way from decisions made to conjugal intimacy. I couldn't resist the Dr. Phil response. So, how's that working for you? What I'd like to do is reclaim this text in a third way, not taking it literally nor throwing it out completely. Call it a both-and rather than an either-or approach. This is the way we Presbyterians generally learn or are taught to take the Bible seriously, I think, without interpreting it literally. 
by looking at and understanding the historical and social and cultural and literary context in which it was written. It was written as the Word of God, revealed to the writers of Scripture in time and in place, therefore in the context of that time and place as it was being written. They didn't know any more about how the world was created cosmologically than anybody else. So when they wrote the seven-day creation story, they're not writing a biology or uh, physics lesson, but instead a sermon about how God is the creator of all things, and this is how it works, not historically, but spiritually. The hard part, the ambiguous part about reading the text the third way is that to interpret the truth, you have to understand the historical spin. That is to say, the spin in the day that it was written, as well as our own need to spin it the way we want it spun now. But when the mores and cultures and society changes, as they have obviously done in the last two to 3,000 years, then the conflict we face is whether to interpret the text as it was understood then and literally or to interpret it now in a new context. It's the same struggle the Supreme Court locks down on in every single ruling about the constructionist and the deconstructionist. Whether there is interpretation according to cultural change. When this text begins, wives, be subject to your husbands, it is simply stating a point of fact. It is without question in those days. It was, in fact, the only choice a wife had if she were to stay as wife. It would be like saying to a new freshman class of Florida football players, listen to your coach, otherwise you won't stay on the team. Or, like telling people in the Middle Ages to be subjects of the king, The world in which the Bible was written was at its core a culture based on patriarchy, honor, and shame. And it was the male patriarch and the male patriarch's sons whose honor and shame were at risk. And the one who brought the risk, of course, was the woman, either through adultery or non-virginity upon marriage or any other ways of bringing shame upon the family and dishonoring the whole family structure. That's why the marriage arrangement was always contractual between the father of the groom and the father of the bride and why always the father of the groom would pay the father of the bride a bride price for the contract because the bride's job was to be as an economic entity for the family. She really didn't fit into the original nuclear family. She didn't have the same relationship to her husband that wives and husbands do now. Her job was basically to keep the house and to have and raise sons. For that family unit from grandfather, great-grandfather, uncles, aunts, non-married siblings all gathered together in one place was a production unit needed in that culture. While we enjoy 
relatively free choice of mates from all walks of life and religion based on our own sort of rampant American individual ability to make choices, in Jesus' day, the female's role and identity was determined not by her choice, but by her father's. That's why now still it lingers in a wedding when we come forward and the father is standing next to the bride and the preacher says, in the old days, I don't say that now, in the old days, who giveth this woman to be married to this man as if the, the daughter were still the property of the father? Now instead we ask for the blessing of the family. Romance and emotional connections were suspect in those days because any spontaneous emotional relationship would threaten the whole family structure and it was therefore completely frowned upon. Think of Romeo and Juliet. The primary focus of affection was between mothers and their sons and sisters and brothers, not between spouses. So ultimately, the relationship between spouses was economic and obligatory based on male domination and social issues of honor and shame. Some people say we should go back to that. Thank God much cultural change has happened since those patriarchal and even misogynist days like Afghanistan today, I think. Since women got the vote, and especially since they were given responsibility for their own reproduction choices, the culture of patriarchy, in the U.S. at least, and in most Western society, except in some really conservative, mostly Southern cultures, has not gone away. At least it has gone underground. For instance, in the American household, the cultural expectation is for our children to finally move away from home, get a job, and or get married, start their own family, and live, hopefully, apart from the parents, each family a unit of consumption. In those days, as I said, it was the opposite case. Get married to a wife who was chosen, move in. And instead of a consumptive unit, you are a productive unit. The prodigal son story, when the prodigal asked his father for his inheritance and left home, it wasn't just that he left home, he was forced out because he had shamed his father to the extent that the whole community could no longer live with him. So they gave him what he thought was his due and pushed him out of the community because he had dishonored his father so much. Elders in those days were highly honored, unlike in our culture, and never put away. They continued to live with the family. This helps us to understand how radical Jesus was when he said, I have come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law in Luke. In that case, he's calling the whole marital, familial, social structure into question. Woo! Now that's putting it into context. So here's the gift of this passage, at least as I can see it. 
first it forces us to take seriously the historical and cultural context of the Bible. Seriously, but not necessarily literally. But second and more important, it holds us to an expectation of mutual subjection to each other. Mutual subjection to each other. A partnership of service for each other as Christ served the church. Not based on a position of hierarchy or authority, but instead complete humility, service, sacrifice, in the same way that Christ served and sacrificed. On his knees, washing the disciples' feet, forgiving them seven times seventy, loving them unconditionally, making himself subject to them, giving up his life in the end. When each partner in marriage is willing to do that, I suspect there would be far fewer divorces in the world. And when each one of us would be willing to do that in every relationship, I suspect there would be far fewer conflicts. But the greatest point of this, to me at least, is that because many Christians have missed Paul's main point, that they believe that this kind of power and authoritative, submissive marriage language illustrates the relationship of the church to the people in the church. A kind of hierarchy and authoritative power of the church over you, the submissive people who are called to subject yourselves to the clerical authorities. But if you read this closely and not so literally, you discover it is the other way around. The humble and unconditional love of Jesus Christ for the church is the model the church should follow in her relationship with her members, just as the humble and unconditional love of Christ for the church is the model each one of us should follow in our marriages and in all relationships. If we are by some reason of circumstance in some position of power and authority, then our job is to become Christ-like. On our knees, submitting to the other. May the Lord bring forth that will and way in each of us. In Christ's name.